You're listening to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe, a podcast dedicated to women at all stages of our health and wellness journey. I'm Christy from Christy Lee Nutrition. And I'm Cammy from This Mum's Kitchen. And together, we're here to inspire you with the knowledge and confidence to love into your mind, body, spirit, and lifestyle. Now set aside some time for you and join us on this cup-filling journey. Hello and welcome back to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe. This is episode number 16 and you're here with Christy and today I'm very excited to announce that this is our second guest podcast interview and we will be talking to my very dear colleague, Dr. Pradeep Jayasurya. He is a leading general practitioner in Perth in Western Australia and he has a specialised interest in iron deficiency. So he developed the first community-based iron infusion facility in Australia, and this allowed for easier and safe access for IV or intravenous iron for the community here. He's widely regarded and consults and lectures widely throughout Australia, promoting the better management of iron deficiency to improve outcomes for patients. He's also actively involved in various research programs and he contributes to policy in the area of patient blood management. So it's without saying that he's a really special GP here in Perth and he has such a high standard of care for his patients. So I'm very excited and very pleased to present this interview for you all today. And I will recommend that if you especially are a woman, you have a period, this is going to be relevant for you because we lose so much iron every month and uh, iron deficiency is extremely common for women. So if, if you don't have an iron deficiency, there'll be a woman or a girl in your life who might do. So it's wonderful information to have. So I hope you enjoy today's interview. So thank you, Pradeep, for coming on to our show today. And thank you for having me along, Christy. No worries. So first of all, I'd love you to introduce yourself and tell us all about why you decided to specialize in iron. Thanks. Well, uh, as you know, I've been in general practice for probably longer than I'd want to admit, but it's it's around 30 years now. And as a general practitioner, we see a lot of people with iron deficiency. And uh, and it's a common problem that affects people's lives dramatically, uh, from fatigue to tiredness and just general quality of life. And I guess over the years, I've I've seen the dramatic uh, impact you can make by treating, treating patients and, and you can actually make a difference to their lives. But it's more than that. The impact is actually at a greater level because it improves their other comorbidities such as their uh, heart disease, their kidney function and, and so on. So it was going along quite well and, and, the, and when I was looking back at it in, in about two, 2013, uh, I was thinking that there really isn't a systematized approach to managing iron and and everyone was doing it in a in a rather sporadic and haphazard way uh, and and i think the reason for that when i reflected on it was that iron deficiency actually cuts across different specialty boundaries so it could be in the realms of hematology 
to do with blood, it could be to do with bowel uh, disease, gastroenterology, it could impact the heart, it could impact the lungs, uh, but most importantly it can impact the gynaecological system. Mm. Uh, and because of those cross uh, specialty boundaries, uh, a lot of people just weren't managed well and, and it really needed a, a generalist approach to, to take this on. And it became crystallised uh, in 2013 when I was uh, sitting in a government committee looking at uh, intravenous iron. Uh, and I was there as a general practitioner and there were all these specialists sitting around uh, wondering how they could uh, improve the management of these people. And I was thinking to myself, well, this really lends itself to a, a generalist approach and a primary care approach because we see so many of these patients uh, through our practices and there are access issues in getting into hospitals and specialists. So uh, after that meeting we came back to Perth and, and a lot of things lined up and, and just to digress a little bit, if you didn't know, uh, WA and Perth in particular is, uh, has, has, is noted for its impact uh, on transfusions and what we call patient blood management. And that is in WA, we've got the lowest rate of blood transfusions in the world. Wow. And it's, uh, it's quite an amazing feat. Uh, a little, uh, doesn't get a lot of press, uh, but it's an amazing uh, bit of work that's happened here. Why do you and, feel like that's the case? Uh, I think uh, there were a lot of very dedicated uh, individuals in, in WA. And I think WA, uh, being so isolated, you can actually implement some really good programs here. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, and there was a good leadership at the time and there's a lot of goodwill and some really good people who, uh, who drove that. But the next iteration for patient blood management is, is anemia, which is what leads to the transfusion is the prelude to that is often iron deficiency. Mm. So if you manage iron deficiency better, we should be actually be able to drop those transfusion rates down even further. Now the reason I mentioned that was because of all of that activity that was happening in Perth and I came back here with these ideas around managing uh, iron in primary care, that we put together a, uh, a community-based iron infusion centre out at Belmont which is the first of its kind uh, in Australia and, and the world. And that was very successful because it showed to everyone that we can actually manage iron deficiency within primary care. That was safe, it was affordable and it was effective. So that's what got me into it and I guess from that that's propelled me into other, other educational um, uh, briefs which I've had to do and, and I've also been uh, quite involved in, in research endeavours around iron because in primary care there's a lot of work we still need to do and there's a lot of things we need to mm. find out uh, because all the work that's been done is at the, at the extreme end of iron deficiency which is iron deficiency anemia. I guess we'll talk about that a bit later on. Mm. But So most of the research has been done at, at that extreme end but we haven't done a lot of work in, in, in the early phases. And in medicine, it's always a mantra. Early intervention is always better uh, Absolutely. For, for people. Yep. 
Something that really stood out to me when I first met you was that you were specialising in iron because you don't hear of a GP specialising in anything. They're a general practitioner. If you're specialising, you're going to be a specialist, a haematologist, for example. Um, but you're right because it's missing, isn't it? it not everyone can afford or, or can get in to see a haematologist if they have problems with their iron. They actually go to their GP first and it's the GP who really manages it. Um, so I think it's really valuable that you're doing this. Exactly. It sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? A specialist general practitioner. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it's funny. Uh, I was at a meeting uh, several years ago and, uh, and in the lift where many of these conversations seem to happen, a uh, haematologist tapped me on the shoulder and said, Pradeep, why do GPs keep sending me these people with iron deficiency? Uh, because there's not much I can do for them. Uh, and, and he's absolutely right, because iron deficiency, again, for a, G, for a GP or anyone, if you're going to see a specialist, the question is, which specialist do you see? Uh, because it does cut across those specialty boundaries. Um, so coming back to, to G, general practice, I think the, uh, the other main point about why this can be managed in general practice is that a lot of the treatment and investigations you need for iron deficiency can, can be done quite simply. Uh, the, the main issue is that uh, is of access and it's about getting to see the right people uh, at the right time and that includes dietitians such as yourself and, and as you know accessing dietitians can be difficult and, and also finding the right dietitian for a particular problem can be challenging. Absolutely and I'm really curious to know given that you work in this area why do, why are you so passionate about it why should everybody be more interested in iron and know more about iron and care about checking in on their iron? I, I, I think the, the more I've been invested in this area the more it becomes apparent that iron is just central to everything. Uh, so everyone thinks about iron in relation to blood, and, and people know that iron is a critical component of haemoglobin, which carries the oxygen around your body. So I think everyone understands that, but uh, what we've forgotten about iron is that it's central to every cellular process in the body, especially the energy-generating uh, ce cellular activities, which happens in those little uh, or organelles in the cells called mitochondria and uh, which generate energy. So if you don't have enough iron, it depletes energy and that leads to a lot of other problems. And the emerging research over the last five years into heart failure, into oxygen utilisation, has all revolved around the other roles of iron apart from blood. And there's some really interesting work, especially in children relating to ADHD, um, uh, learning deficits and so on, which, uh, which highlights the role of iron. So iron is central and, uh, and, and optimising it improves the quality of life. And, and you see the benefit and it's quite dramatic. You know, we, we've seen people with uh, low iron who put up with it because they think that's normal. So they, especially women, they're fatigued, they have kids, and, 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 and they just get by, as, as, as women do, thinking it's normal. And you, and you repeat their iron, or you you've improve their iron levels, normalise it, and, and it's like it's life-changing for them. Like the them. light but, bulb just got yeah, switched on. And, and, uh, 
And for GPs, that's incredibly satisfying when, when you treat someone and they come back and say that their life's better. And that's, uh, that for me as a practitioner, that's, uh, that's very, uh, very gratifying. Mm. Uh, because at the end of the day, all of us uh, want to actually make a difference to, to people's lives. And it's not about mortality and, and about reducing burden of disease, which is what all the researchers talk about, but here it is, you're actually making a quality of life improvement. And in women particularly, who are more prone to iron deficiency than men, the ripple effect on the family is phenomenal. So, you know, if, if within a family unit, if, if a mother is feeling better, then the kids do better and, and the whole family unit uh, does, does better. So, so the impact is, is not just for the, for the individual, it's, it, has, uh, mm. it has a quite a widespread effect. And worldwide, we know iron deficiency is a problem. Uh, so at least 25% of the world is affected by iron, which is just mind-boggling when you think about it. And, and, and you wonder why it doesn't get the press uh, that it should do. You know, we talk about infectious diseases and, and other conditions which have a much lesser prevalence. But uh, this is something where we can actually make a difference and, and make a, a substantive impact on, on, uh, on public health worldwide. Do you know anything about, I was just reflecting on what you said there about women being more affected and then that transferring to the household. Women who are iron deficient during their pregnancy, do you know if that actually impacts on the baby's iron status when they're born and then does that impact potentially their neurodevelopment or, um, yeah, I guess their growth? Absolutely. So... Uh, and I'm glad you brought that up. So if, if you had if you had if you had one dollar to spend and it was your last dollar to spend on, on iron, the group you would target would be that particular target because that gets passed down through the generation. So 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 mum's iron is low, the baby's iron is low and, and, and that affects um, uh, low the birth weight the baby has it affects learning in those early stages and those kids tend to be iron deficient from from day one so they're already behind the eight ball and we know that once you're iron deficient to get those levels back up is very very difficult without an intervention so these kids are already behind the eight ball and and then they get into adulthood they have children and the whole thing just repeats itself mm. uh, so so the biggest bang for the buck if you like is is if we can get to young women uh, before they get pregnant uh, that would be a major public health uh, benefit and uh, and again I guess you know we've been trying to make the case for for screening for iron deficiency in that age group you know should we go around testing everyone and, and actually repleting their their iron and uh, the jury's still out on whether that's a, a cost-effective strategy. Uh, personally, I think there's a very good case to be made. Mm, that's super interesting. Um, and I think a lot about how many women who I see struggle with heavy menstrual periods um, or don't bleed, and then all of a sudden they've got their period you know, 60 days later and it doesn't stop for a month. I imagine that group of women really, really struggle with iron deficiency as well. Absolutely. So in, uh, it was interesting when we set up the iron infusion centre, um, so I was doing some stats to, to, 
to promote it and, and to justify its existence. And when we first started, like 95% of the people coming to the clinic were women. And I sort of scratched my head and thought, that, that's a bit high. And I thought, well, that might be the initial phases. But over the, over the next two or three years, it stayed around the 75, 80%, which is quite a significant gender imbalance. Then we broke that down further and we found that most of that 80% were actually in the 15 to 45 year age group. Mm. And, uh, and, and that's been substantiated in, in various other research uh, projects. So, and I think this is one of the things, I think in iron deficiency we've uh, lost sight of because iron deficiency has got hijacked by the gastroenterologists and I hope none of them are listening to this. Uh, because if you look at around any guidelines around iron deficiency it's all about looking at the bowel and looking for a bleeding source there but statistically we know that 75% uh, of the people with iron deficiency uh, it's due to heavy menstrual bleeding Mm. and heavy menstrual bleeding is something that again is not well recognised and not well treated and there are lots of reasons for that it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast but I think one of the some of the issue, important issues there are that women one don't recognize what heavy menstrual bleeding is that they consider whatever bleeding they've got is normal so de- defining what's normal and abnormal is important and I think also secondly that a lot of people put up with symptoms and don't don't seek uh, help or or, mm. or, or intervention when, when they need to. Yeah. And also heavy menstrual bleeding has been rather poorly managed by, by my colleagues uh, because if you go, uh, the, a lot of GPs haven't been trained on how to manage heavy menstrual bleeding. And it is an area that, that has undergone a lot of change recently in terms of the investigations we can do and the treatments we can offer. Yeah, in, there was, in a, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was basically a question of giving, giving a pill and giving the pill, sorry, and, uh, and that was it. And, uh, but things have moved on uh, a lot further than that. So it does need a workup and it does re- require a, a, a plan of management, which is a bit more complicated than what we used to do. So iron deficiency is a problem, heavy menstrual bleeding is a problem, and really the two problems should be managed together. Uh, mm. and, and we've also noticed, so through the clinic, uh, we've noticed that a lot of patients come in to see us and, and they keep having repeated infusions. And, and so what happens is we, we top up their iron, in, iron levels with an iron infusion or with, with tablets, and, and that's great, but then the bleeding c- continues, so their mm. iron levels drop, then they come back, have another top up, have further bleeding, and, and it becomes a revolving door. So you have to break that cycle, and the only way you can break that cycle is by addressing the cause of the iron deficiency. Yep. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's one of the main educational messages I'm trying to get to GPs, is that it's great, you're finding a lot of iron deficiency, which is the first step, uh, fix the iron, but you need to fix the problem that caused it as yep. well. Yep. And that was something that I vividly remember when we met as well. I remember saying, I'm so glad to hear you say that I look for the cause as to why someone's iron is reducing, not just fixing the problem, because it is likely to come back if we haven't managed the root cause. And it sounds like, so heavy menstrual bleeding is a really big one. Um, GI conditions, 
Um, pregnancy would be another one. Are there other conditions uh, that put people at risk of iron deficiency? So if you, if you look at, uh, so in, in simple terms, when you're looking for causes and, and it's, it's not rocket science, so either you don't have enough in, i.e. there's not enough in your, in your diet or your nutrition, which in other parts of the world is, is, is a major factor, or there's not enough, there's a defect in absorption. That is, you may be having enough iron nutritionally, but it's not getting into your system and there are conditions like celiac disease, which um, uh, which cause it, and uh, and you're probably more expert at those things than I am, Christy. Uh, so there's that one group of uh, so reduced intake or absorption, and then the other big group is excessive blood loss, and uh, and that happens in heavy menstrual bleeding or, or or through the gastrointestinal tract. The other third group is physiological iron deficiency, where, where the demands for your iron are increased at certain phases of your life, such as when you're an adolescent, when you have your growth spurt, when you're a child, and in pregnancy when, uh, when, when the baby's uh, mm. iron demands are, are greater and, and also the, the blood volume expands a bit during the pregnancy, so, so that, that needs to be accommodated. Mm. So those are the... So, so they're traditionally, they were the three major categories. Uh, the fourth one, which we've added to that, is what we now call functional iron deficiency. And this is a slightly more difficult concept in that the body's got enough iron, but there's a block in the utilisation of the iron. So the iron can't be used for whatever it needs to be. And that happens when you've got chronic inflammation. And those are conditions like heart failure, renal failure, uh, chronic sort of inflammatory types of arthritis like rheumatoid and so on. And that category was fairly small, but as our population is ageing, we're going to see more and more of that. And, uh, and that's a more difficult uh, entity to diagnose, uh, and the treatment is slightly different. So, but that's an important category. Absolutely. I think, and we're all living much more of an inflammatory lifestyle now as well. Pollution, poor diet, little exercise, lots of stress. Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest, the number one cause of mortality is heart disease and obesity, diabetes. Yeah. So I guess you could, you could say that iron deficiency is on the increase. Absolutely. So obesity is an interesting one. And, and I guess you're seeing quite a bit of that yourself now. Um, so when you look at it, so obesity is now considered an inflammatory disorder. And with the inflammation, that causes that functional iron deficiency. So that makes people tired. The iron can't be utilized for energy generation, so they become less active, which makes them put on more weight, which then in turn causes more iron deficiency. So they're in, a, in, in quite a vicious spiral. And uh, so there's quite an important connection between the two. And, and we know, even with bariatric surgery, that uh, they routinely check people's iron before the surgery and, and, and top it up. But I think, so that bit's done well, but after the surgery, the follow-up uh, on that is not so good because the iron still needs to be repleted along mm. with the other, other nutrients. And again, you're probably a bigger expert on that <laughs> than I am. So I, I won't, I won't uh, tread on your toes too much. But, but I think the obesity iron connection is, uh, is, is important. But also, it, the other interesting thing I find out 
find about obesity and iron is that they're both regulated uh, entities. And, and one of the light bulb moments for me dealing with iron, and I often gave lectures on iron metabolism, and, and if you look at a textbook on iron metabolism, it's, it's very complicated. Uh, but the concept that's important is that iron is regulated. That is, your body regulates your iron levels. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about iron deficiency today, but don't forget that having too much iron is also a problem, as we see in hemochromatosis. So if you think about it, the body's got to have some way of balancing that and keep it on an even keel. It's like diabetes, like blood pressure. It has to be regulated. And there are complex regul regulatory systems within the body that actually keeps your iron levels constant. So when you see someone with iron deficiency, or if you've got iron deficiency, it means that that regulatory system has actually broken down. So it means that something has gone awry, which is why it needs to be worked up and, and, and thoroughly assessed, and, and people need to understand the mechanism by which that, that system has broken, and then fix it. Uh, so that's why uh, your body, we don't, we don't lose a lot of iron uh, in, in day-to-day -day activity. So most of the iron in our body is actually recirculated, believe it or not. So, so a, lot, a lot of the iron resides in red blood cells, but the red blood cells get turned over, but the body extracts the iron and then uses it to produce more red cells. So the, the iron gets uh, quite efficiently processed, which is quite amazing to think that you can go a lifetime and, and that same molecule of iron is still floating around. So, uh, so we only lose about one to two milligrams of iron um, uh, a day, uh, which is the bit we need to uh, replenish nutritionally. How is uh, that lost? Is that through sweat? Is it through the yeah, GI tract? Yeah, so most of the uh, uh, iron is in the, in the lining of your gastrointestinal system, what we call the mucosal cells. So a lot of the iron is shed through there and also the skin cells. Mm. Uh, is, uh, so that's where the, the iron is lost. Uh, and that just needs to be repleted. Uh, now, nutritionally, I, I guess, uh, as you well know, uh, we have to replace one to two milligrams, but we need to have about 15, 10 to 20 milligrams in our diet because only about 10% of it gets absorbed. And that doesn't sound a lot, but um, that's not always easy to mm. get that uh, get that amount. And, and in pregnancy, as you know, that uh, yep. that quantity is even more uh, increased yes, and then difficult to do. That's the most difficult part of my job, that especially if someone's pregnant, you know, your iron requirements are up to 28 milligrams and you're not going to be absorbing everything that you're eating. And if you're also vegetarian or pescatarian or vegan, um, it's, it's incredibly difficult from a dietary perspective to improve your iron levels. And I feel that where the diet is placed is in maintenance more so, but when someone's deficient, and especially when they're anemic, I feel like this is where the GP needs to be involved to get it back up so that then the diet can maintain it. As long as we've figured out what the cause is, otherwise we'll just end up back at square one, won't we? Exactly. Mm. So if, you, if you're deficient, and that, that's an important point, so if you're deficient, you can, you know, theoretically, you can increase your diet to replace that iron, but it's, you, it's a lot of iron-rich food you have to take, and you have to take it for six months. So you might do it for a few days, you might do it for a week, but there's no way you can do that diet for, for six months. 
And uh, it's interesting, I was at a, at a lecture given by one of your colleagues, Christy, and she was pregnant herself and, and she just had the baby. And she said she tried to go through a pregnancy knowing she knew everything she needed to do, but she just said she just couldn't. It was just impossible mm. to maintain that iron intake. Well, you throw nausea in there That's and right. food aversions. <coughs> so many women are adverse to meat products during their pregnancy. So it's exactly. just a, it's a nightmare. It's, it's very tough. So the, so the message we get to GPs is if you find someone with iron deficiency, it needs to be replaced and it needs to be replaced with some sort of supplementation. Once it's replaced, then you've got to maintain it with a good diet. And then that's, uh, that's crucial. I completely agree with you there. And now I'm, what I'm really interested in as well is that we often talk about energy levels being the indicator for having low iron or just one of the major symptoms. But are there other symptoms that indicate that it could be an iron deficiency? The short answer is yes. So there's a multitude of symptoms associated with iron deficiency. Tiredness is the one everybody knows about. Uh, but interestingly, uh, uh, Toby Richards, um, who's here in Perth now, who's a uh, world-renowned expert uh, in iron deficiency, he did a survey amongst women in England and he sent a, a questionnaire to, uh, to all the women on his, uh, on his database who had iron deficiency and asked them what symptoms they had. And believe it or not, the, the number one uh, uh, symptom that worried them the most was hair loss. Oh, uh, okay. So, so that's, that, that's the one that, uh, that was a surprise, uh, and that's common. Uh, brittle nails, uh, you know, the, 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 the easily broken finger, fingernails that people complain of, just feel looking pale, shortness of breath. Uh, difficulty in concentration, uh, you might find that you get a bit more irritable, uh, all relates back to the tiredness, get headache, um, depression is, is often associated with it, uh, and, and like the, the list goes on and on, dry skin, the, there are some weird ones like uh, you might have a craving for, for ice uh, or, or even dirt, uh, uh, that's really common in pregnancy actually wanting to crunch on ice and eat dirt i think it's called pika that's right yeah that's right. <laughs> and uh, and it's funny like and, and most people wouldn't admit to that but when you actually question them that comes out so that's a common one um uh, and in kids uh, attention deficit uh, or hyperactivity uh, even autism type symptoms are associated with iron deficiency and, and the other one that's common is restless leg syndrome. I don't know whether you've come across mm. that, but uh, these people who, whose legs just get restless at night and they just don't know where to put them, uh, there's a very strong mm. association with iron deficiency. Uh, so basically, you know, when we talk to GPs, we say, you know, you have to be alert uh, to a multitude of symptoms that can, can, can signify iron deficiency. Because as I said before, because it affects every system in your body, and therefore, there could be symptoms attributable to, to any of them. Uh, so I think if, you, if you're getting any of those symptoms we spoke about, get, it, get your iron checked. It's really easy. Uh, it requires two blood tests. One is for your haemoglobin, which measures the amount of red blood cells uh, in, in your blood. And the other is uh, uh, some iron studies, which includes a parameter called ferritin, which is uh, one of the markers we use to measure your iron stores. It's 
So two very simple blood tests uh, will tell you what your iron status is. Yep. And that's just taken in one blood vial. So it's two tests, but you just go in once and they can look at both. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so a lot of people uh, do wonder then, what is the difference between iron deficiency and anemia? Right. So you have to... Um, so I, you don't just become anemic overnight, uh, unless you've had a massive hemorrhage, as you might uh, after uh, having a baby and you're having a postpartum hemorrhage. So acute hemorrhages are very uncommon. So anemia happens gradually. So if, if you like, it goes through stages. So firstly, as, as if you're bleeding or if you're not getting enough iron, your iron levels start to deplete. And as they go down, your body compensates for it. Uh, but eventually that compensatory system breaks down and then you don't have enough iron to make blood, blood cells and then you become anemic. So anemia is when you don't have enough blood cells, but the precursor to that is not having enough iron. So you go through the stage of being iron deficient, and as the condition lingers, you become anemic. And I tell my GP colleagues that if they find a patient who comes to them and they're anemic, it should tell them two things. One is that their iron deficiency is quite severe, and two, that it's been there for a long time. Uh, and, and that's important. And, and if you, interestingly, when, when, when I get to see these people, I look through their historical records, uh, you can actually track back when the problem started because you can see when, when the iron levels are falling. But, but the red flag doesn't go up till they become anemic because, again, that's, that's been a problem in, in the medical fraternity is that we've always thought that iron deficiency is not a problem. It only becomes a problem when they're anemic. But the thinking on that now has changed and we now know that iron deficiency needs to be treated with the same vigour as we would someone with anemic, mm. anemia because eventually that's where they're going to end up. Is the management quite different for someone who's deficient versus anemic? Uh, not really. So the, the only difference is one of urgency and... and, and uh, and the doses you might give. But the treatment is basically the same. And the treatment is that you, you have to restore the iron levels and you, there's only two ways of restoring it. You, as we mentioned before, diet on its own is, is not realistic. So let's rule that out. So you can either re replace them with oral supplements or intravenously. Uh, now, the oral supplements, there's a whole range of them on, on, on the market. Just be careful. The, the, it's, it's a big industry, the, the supplement market, and you have to make sure that you get enough iron. Uh, so find a supplement that actually gives you the right quantity of iron. And, and, and just be careful. You need to look at the fine print on the label to work out the quantity of iron. The traditional teaching around replacement is that you need about 100 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron. So you need to find that on the label. Now, that number is, is, is subject to some debate. So some people say, you know, maybe a little bit less iron is okay, maybe between 50 to 100. But those are the sort of numbers you're looking at. A lot of the, a lot of the supplements have only got two to five milligrams, so they're nowhere mm. near enough. But the problem with iron supplements, as you probably know, Christy, I'm sure you've got patients coming to you and say, you know, I take these iron tablets, they make me sick, 
yeah. get constipated, my stools go black, and 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 the tolerability of supplements is a is a problem. So one of the interesting pieces of research that's come out in the last few years is that taking alternate day supplements works almost as well as taking uh, the iron on a daily basis. And there's a good physiological reason for that. So that, that may be an option you might want to try if, if you're taking supplements is to take it every second day uh, and that'll work. On the other side, of the coin is the intravenous preparation. Now, in in um, uh, you're too young to remember, Christy, but uh, uh, when I was training, a lot of women got their iron intramuscularly. That is, they got a jab in their bottom. It is incredibly painful because the solution was thick. It needed to be given multiple times, and it often led to staining. And so you have, um, you know, women from 30, 20, 30 years ago who were treated uh, with these uh, brown stains on their bottom. Oh which, uh, which were, and, 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 and I've seen a few of them still, and, and, and to this day they're still painful. So, so we don't do that anymore unless there are some really extenuating circumstances. So that's, fortunately, that's something that's gone by the wayside. And the reason it's gone by the wayside is we've got some really good intravenous preparations around which are much safer uh, and, and easier to administer. And for us in general practice, uh, when, when those agents were able to be given over a 15, 20 minute period, it became feasible for us to administer them in primary care, which is what we do. But like any drug, they, they've got side effects. And, and so you have to be careful and, and your doctor needs to go through those side effects with you. Side effects are, are fortunately very rare. Uh, the serious ones, which we call anaphylaxis, would happen about one in 200,000. Uh, so that's not a lot. Uh, but they do get a lot of minor side effects like headache and nausea, which lasts a few days. Uh, and, and those are all manageable. The, uh, I guess the side, side effect that worries people most is, is staining. Mm. That, that is if the, if the iron uh, leaks out of the vein, it can stain the skin and that can often be permanent. So if someone's doing these, they, they need to be proficient uh, at, um, at inserting the drips and it mm. needs to be monitored very carefully. So you want to see an expert. Uh, I think so, I mm. think so. And, uh, so and, and also just make sure if you're going, if, if you're getting it done that they've done uh, a lot of these before and they've got this, the system and protocols in place. And we've gone to a lot of trouble to try and educate uh, people on doing this stuff safely. And there's, we've put a lot of resources uh, that, that's available for people to do them mm. uh, if, if they need to. I'm glad you went into detail about that because I have a client who did specifically ask about that, that the staining you know, completely freaks her out to the point where she won't have an infusion and she's... Uh, well, she wasn't doing so well at remembering to take her supplements, but the fear of the staining, <laughs> she takes them every day now. <laughs> um, but that was, that was a question that I had from my audience, and I've actually got quite a few here that uh, my Instagram audience did want to know from you. Are you happy to answer those? I am, as long as they're not too difficult. <laughs> I'm sure for an expert <laughs> like you, you'll be perfectly fine. Um, what? So the first question is... Um, this this client or this um, this follower, I guess I should call them, wants to know: Does 
Is it true that the body doesn't retain iron very well? And um, why is it that some people struggle to manage their iron? Uh, so uh, I, th I think the pr I'd, I'd, I'd contest the premise of that. I, I think the body does retain iron very well, and, and I think it's got that regulatory system. So, so the body does hold iron. If, if it's not, then I think that that indicates that there's a problem and that needs uh, further examination. And often it gets down to an area you're an expert in, Christy, is around that bowel health mm. and, and, and all that uh, bowel flora and, and, and what happens there. So I think it's about interrogating the reason for that. And I wouldn't take it as read that that's normal for them. I think that that question to me tells me that there's something abnormal going on yep. and we need to find out what that is and that requires uh, a, a bit more history and a bit more work up. Yep. Uh, and I think it's about looking at the diet, it's about looking at all those other parameters uh, related to the iron metabolism. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of my audience and a lot of the people who have asked questions today often have endometriosis. And that is very much a gastrointestinal condition, um, as well as a gynecological condition, inflammatory condition, and a, an immune um, malfunction as well. And I feel that with everything you've described today about the various um, populations and the various health problems and conditions that suffer with iron deficiency, it's probably not surprising that this group really do struggle with iron. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I think yeah. So the the whole whole story around iron metabolism, you know, I said it's it's fairly straightforward at the start, but the the nuances and, and, and the complexities when you get into it uh, and the interrelations are, are, are quite complicated. And I think all that stuff around the bowel health is, is I think, mm. a really interesting area now that we're focusing on. Uh, because this iron has to, that's, that's a portal of entry into the body is, is through the gut. Mm -hmm. so, so I think lots of stuff is happening there. Endometriosis brings with it its own set of um, uh, metabolic processes. Uh, and I think the immune dysfunction is, is intricately related to, to iron as well. Um, and I guess I'm just hesitating here because it is a quite a complex area mm. and I don't want to lose your audience and them turning off your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's completely fine. Um, but I'll go into my second question and, and that is, can you take an iron supplement continuously? Because this, this person has said that they're taking their iron supplement for over two years and they're concerned that it's damaging their liver. Okay, so uh, as I mentioned before, so uh, having too much iron it can, is, a, is, a, is a problem and not having enough iron is a problem. So, so if you're on supplements, you need to have your levels checked regularly and there's no other way around it. You can't, there's no clinical way of assessing whether you've had enough iron. So we say, what we do in practice is when we start someone on treatment, uh, we do a blood test at six weeks. And that tells us how they're tracking. And you know, on average, most people only need about six months of supplements uh, to replenish their stores. Now, some people might need a bit longer. But two years, to me, is, is, is quite a long time. So I think it's important that the blood levels get checked and then 
the treatment can be reviewed uh, at that time. If, if your iron levels aren't coming up with oral supplements, then you need to find out why that's the case and also consider an intravenous option which will replete, uh, re replace the iron very quickly. And then after that, it's a question of just watching those iron levels and seeing how quickly they drop, if they drop at all. And we say after we've finished treatment, we do another test either at three or six months to see how those levels are holding up. Because, uh, because once your iron is replaced and your diet is adequate there is, and, and you've treated the cause, there's no reason that, uh, that those iron levels should drop. Mm, yep. uh, so I think to, your, uh, to, to that member who, who asked that question, I would suggest that they actually get those, their, their iron levels checked and uh, and then reassess mm. uh, their treatment. It could even be that, as you said before, they're not taking the right supplement. They might be taking something that only has a few milligrams of iron. Absolutely. Okay, so I've got question number three. What does it mean to have low ferritin and normal haemoglobin? So uh, normal haemoglobin means they're not anemic, which is good. Uh, but a low ferritin, so ferritin is the protein in your blood that is a indicator of your iron stores. So it tells you what, how much iron you have in your reserve tanks. If, if, it's like a petrol tank, if you like. So it tells you how much you've petrol you've got in your tank. So if the iron ferritin is low, it means your petrol tank is running empty, but it's not empty enough to cause a, anemia or a low haemoglobin. Eventually, that will progress and that ferritin over time will, will go down and, it, and then cause the anemia and then the haemoglobin will fall. So when I see a reading like that, that tells me that that person is iron deficient, but hopefully we've got them early enough that we could uh, intervene in, uh, and, and help them out. Yep, brilliant. And the last question that I've got here is about taking iron supplements with magnesium specifically but I think I'm interested in all supplements because I know that there's a lot of interactions with food so are there are, are there particular supplements that you would say keep away from when you take your iron? Uh, this looks, looks like more a question for you than for me Christy. <laughs> so uh, with, with, uh, with iron as you know it's it's affected by acids so uh, you know vitamin C and and uh, and orange juice will enhance its absorption. Uh, cafe, tea, phytates, and so mm. on will 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 inhibit it. And calcium uh, supplements uh, will, yep. will affect it as well. Uh, uh, I'm quite happy to defer to you. Yeah, magnesiums. And I looked into this because the reason that iron competes for absorption with calcium is because they're both divalent cations. So um, well, if you've done your chemistry, you'll know what that means. <laughs> but essentially, it will compete with anything um, like copper, um, calcium, zinc as well. Uh, so I probably would say don't have them together. And I do tend to say don't have your iron generally with any other supplement. And that's a big problem with a lot of prenatal supplements. 
My recommendation that I will give pregnant clients is to take a prenatal that is low in iron and, it, and then take a separate iron supplement and then you can take them at different times of the day. Um, oh, yeah, I, I think that's great advice. And I always worry about those supplements that have multiple um, agents in them or multiple metals in them because you do wonder, because the, 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 there's only so many metal, what we call metal transporters in the cell membrane uh, so, and all of these things have to go through through them, and uh, and you wonder what the rationale for that is, because most of that will just be excreted. Um, you know, my personal view is I think if you need supplements, you know, find out which ones you need and and then take them appropriately so that they're not uh, interfering with each other. Uh, but iron is um, for us iron. Iron supplements is, has always been challenging for people to take because they take it with a lot of other medications which can interact with it as well. Mm. And then you have to take it away from all these other things. And, and just the logistics of that for people is, you know, it's easy for me to say, you know, take it, take it separately. But uh, I, I know at a practical level that's not always easy. And then ideally, if you're taking on an empty stomach, that can increase the chance that it gives you nausea as well. Exactly. So you do want to eat it with your food, but then you're being told, but make sure you don't have it with calcium-rich foods, um, oxalate-rich foods, which is like your spinach or phytates, which are like your legumes. Um, it feels like there's no food left. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, and, and we do know that the challenges that that poses people. But again, the... The, the flip side is, well, you need to somehow re replace your iron, so, so it's worth putting the time in, uh, because the alternative is, is you go down the intravenous route, and, and then the risk of staining, as, as your previous uh, client uh, mentioned. So uh, it isn't easy, it, and you do have to do it for you know, a good six months, so it's not a short-term short thing by any mm. means. Uh, but it's worth the investment because the impact is so significant. Uh, and, and you only notice the difference to yourself once the iron levels come up. And, and, mm. it, and it is dramatic. Um, so it is worth, worth persevering uh, despite the shortcomings. Yep. And just I wanted to add here as well, this was something that came up recently. Uh, a lot of, I get a lot of clients who come in with low energy levels and their immediate assumption is that they must have low iron. I did, recently, um, I had one of my clients go away, have their iron checked. Their iron is completely fine. We go back through their diet and it turns out they're skipping meals, um, going for large periods of time without eating. And that in itself will cause low energy levels as well. So... I think it's worthwhile getting your iron checked, but when it's not, there's so many other reasons that your energy levels could be low. And as Pradeep was just saying, it impacts every aspect of your life. You know, when you wake up in the morning, do you want to feel like you've been hit by a bus or do you want to feel like you just spring out of bed and you can, you know, hit your goals and be present with your kids and um, feel like you have the energy to exercise? Um, you know, you really can't put a price on that feeling, in my opinion. I agree, and, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think if, you, if you've got any symptoms, and you know, I guess we've been talking about iron and, and we're passionate about it, but it's important that, that it's worked up properly, that, that you're looking for other reasons why those symptoms might occur. 
and often it is nutritional uh, uh, and and we're getting to understand more about nutrition and uh, and symptoms and 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 how it gets absorbed and how mm. it interacts so I think um, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a plug here Christy I, th- I think getting a good dietitian or getting a good nutritional assessment is is valuable uh, and because it is more complicated than than we we might think and it needs time uh, for someone to go through and and interrogate your diet Uh, and that's where you guys Mm. come in uh, because GPs don't have the skills or the time to to do that yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for doing that. <laughs> I didn't tell him beforehand <laughs> to do that. <laughs> well, I have enjoyed that conversation immensely. It's such um, an important topic to talk about, especially in the space of women's health. Before we finish, though, I do feel like you know I'd love for people to reach out to you, especially around Perth because you're local here. If anyone has an iron deficiency or anemia or is just really struggling to manage their condition, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, great. So if uh, so, we uh, if you look us up on our website, which is waironcentre.com.au. Uh, and you can send us a message we're on Facebook uh, happy to take any questions or messages through that uh, uh, one of the things you'll find is people who work in iron deficiency are very passionate about uh, improving uh, the, a lot of uh, people because we know that uh, a lot there's a lot of patients out a lot of people out there with iron deficiency that we just aren't treating so what I didn't mention before Christy is that we uh, we never knew what the prevalence of iron deficiency in the community here in Australia was and we did some studies recently, well last year, and we think it's conservatively at, at about 12%. Uh, that's in the entire population, but in, in women in the, in the childbearing age group it's about 40%. So it's almost one in every two women in that age group are iron deficient. And we know that they're not getting treated because we know what the numbers for mm. supplements are and we know what the numbers for iron infusion are. So we know that there's a large, large cohort of uh, people mm. uh, that, that need, uh, need to be investigated and treated. Mm. And, and there's a lo- lot of us out there who, who, who would love to help. And, and as I said before, Perth is sort of a, a bit of a hub for, for iron and, and anemia so there's uh, we've got a lot of experts uh, here. That's great and I guess vegan and vegetarian diets are on the increase with the whole plant-based boom that's going on at the moment you know the whole gut health boom microbiome boom plant-based diets are being recommended I think we're going to see more and more of this cropping up I've even thought myself I've started implementing a few more vegetarian meals into my week Maybe I should get my iron checked. <laughs> I'm, I'm in that age group. <laughs> well, I think there's no harm in getting your iron checked. Yeah. And, and, and also, if, if, um, if you're planning a pregnancy, it's better to actually address the problem before you get pregnant uh, rather than That's after right. you find out. Because, well, again, as you know, uh, the, the earlier you do something and, and, and optimise uh, the, these parameters, the better it for you and the baby Mm, prevention is always better isn't it absolutely yeah (laughs) okay so before we finish up today is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience uh christy there's a interesting study that 
that uh, we're helping out with, uh, and, and Toby Richards is he heading up a study uh, on iron deficiency, and he's doing a, a very interesting study looking at uh, women of uh, childbearing age who are uh, who are athletes. So they're not elite athletes, but the people who exercise, say, five days a week. And what he's trying to show is, one, he's trying to find, A, if they're iron deficient. And if they're iron deficient, he wants to see whether supplementing them with iron actually makes a difference to their exercise capacity. And so this will uh, inf inform what their, what their exercise tolerance is and whether iron impacts that. So it'll be an important bit of work. Uh, and Toby's done this work uh, in England already with elite athletes. So he's sort of looking at, uh, at, 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 at a lower level athlete, if you like. So that study is about to start uh, in, in October. And, uh, and they'll be recruiting people for it. So if anyone fits the bill, uh, give, us a, give us a yell. Do they contact you or...? Uh, there'll be a link on our website mm. uh, to that study. So Brilliant. Uh, it'll Wh be good. What's your website? Uh, wainioncentre.com.au Brilliant. Okay. Well, if anybody out there fits that criteria, please go over to the website, um, click the link and, um, and apply. Fantastic. Thanks, Christy. Thank you so much for listening. We're really grateful for the time you've spent with us and can't wait to do it again. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hop over to Apple Podcasts or Facebook and leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to us via the Nourish, Nurture, Breathe Facebook or Instagram pages and check out nourishnurturebreathe.com for our show notes. Thank you and until next time. Remember to nourish, nurture and breathe every day.